Welcome to Stronger Than Reason. So let's talk about rock and roll. The thing about rock and roll is that it's eternal. We know that. It comes in and out of fashion, though, in waves every few years. And some of these waves really catch the media's attention and take off. And that's something that happened to popular music, as you may know, in the early 90s. And if you think about it, a lot of the music of the 80s was powered by new technology, you know, new synths and samplers and sequencers. And that led to a burst of innovation and creativity and produced a lot of music that could not have been created even a decade before. So new wave, no wave, post-punk, synth pop, hip hop. So by and large, electronic technology drove all of those and it defined the music of the 80s. But in the early 90s, there was a backlash. All of that electronic music and the rave culture that powered the second summer of love with all its baggy clothing and fishing hats and smiley faces was suddenly uncool. We had strayed too far. We had dared to fly too high. And lo, suddenly electronic was a bad word. It was as if we had all sinned in the 80s and now our penance was to revert back to this de facto root of all Western music, which is pure, uncut rock and roll. And we know this is just the great cycle of things, because every 15 years or so, kids rediscover the electric guitar, and they fall in love with it all over again. And it's always viewed as a sort of going back to basics. And the same thing happened when prog rock got too big for its britches and spawned punk back in 76 and 77. And it happened again in the early 2000s, with the garage rock revival of the Strokes and the Hives and the White Stripes and all those other bands with the in their name. And it'll no doubt happen again every so often forever, just like clockwork, because guitars have their own gravity, just like the sun. They're kind of central to popular music, and try as we might to break free of their grip, they always kind of pull us back. And so it was in the early 90s. Of course, the press loved labels, so they called this seat pardon me, they called this scene grunge. Now, I'm not going to talk much about grunge in this show because I wasn't a huge fan. It was a bit too popular for me, a little too trendy. And, you know, sure, I, like many others, I experimented with flannel. And I did like some of the bands. Maybe my favorite was Alice in Chains for various reasons. And I know it's shocking, but I was never much of a Nirvana fan, though I could appreciate some of their tunes. But What I'd rather talk about is the effect that grunge had on the rest of the music industry. So remember, in 1990, just prior to grunge, it was all about electronic augmented party bands like Jesus Jones and the Happy Mondays. And then a switch flipped, and suddenly all of those guys found themselves on the outs. And whole careers and scenes were suddenly just deflating. And that includes a lot of the bands that I've been talking about, Uh, industrial and electronic acts. Suddenly, beats and samples weren't enough. You had to rock. And everyone had a decision to make. Do we adapt to this? Do we incorporate more rock elements to stay relevant? Do we start doing Ramones covers? Or do we just ignore the trend and hope it goes away? And most of the bands that I listened to did adapt in some way, some very much so. Uh, Overall, during the first few years of the 90s, there was this tendency toward in-rockification. Bands that had never before picked up rock instruments suddenly discovered them. Bands like Depeche Mode, 
you know, Alan Wilder on the drum kit, Martin Gore suddenly front and center with the guitar, and bands that had never even worn shades on stage suddenly found a lot of rock star swagger. And of course, I'm referring to you two here, who were cribbing not just from grunge, but from the entire electronic music scene, including industrial. And I remember an interview with The Edge on MTV where he specifically called out Ministry and KMFDM as influences. So the fans who embraced U2 for their kind of folk-rocky rattle-and-hum look and sound were just appalled by this, of course. But recordings at this time suddenly had to have dirt and grime and noise, and bands wanted their stuff to sound organic and loose, and aggression became cool in music again. So obviously ministry was in the right place at the right time. On Psalm 69, they fully embraced metal and really just never looked back. Uh, Nine Inch Nails, of course, blew this up to 11 with Broken, and especially with its videos. And, you know, strangely, a few bands were untouched, or maybe they just didn't get it. So an example of this would be New Order. They released their terrible, terrible album, Republic, in 1993, had barely any rock instruments on it, certainly nothing grungy or even the least bit gritty. It sounded like a throwback to the ultra-clean sounds of 1987, so they clearly missed the memo and wouldn't release their rock and roll album until 2001, a whole decade too late. But most electronic bands at least stepped back and kind of stroked their goatees, which, of course, every dude was now growing, and asked themselves, what if we added some metal guitar riffing over the drum machine? Now, to be clear, playing guitar to a drum machine was nothing new. Bands have been doing it one way or another since drum machines were invented. But as far as aggressive riffing over enormous beats or what one might call an ultra-heavy beat, that was pushing things into new territory. And there was one band who were quickly making it their signature sound. This style became a staple of theirs ever since they opened for ministry in 1990, on the notorious tour supporting The Mind is a Terrible Thing to Taste. Maybe that tour is what inspired them to start writing more songs that featured tasty metal guitar riffs. And they at first achieved this by sampling and looping, but soon enough they employed actual guitarists who played original licks and just threw meat to them every now and then, I guess. They happen to have a couple capable guitarists in the band, and they met a few more from the ministry tour, so they figured, why not lean into guitar on the next album? Why not compose tunes like a real rock band with guitars? And of course, I'm talking about KMFDM. Now, I already talked about their previous album, which was 1992's Money, way back in episode 6. And admittedly, Money did come out in the grunge era, but it was more or less a solo effort by KMFDM's leader, Sasha Konietzko, and it wasn't so much a band effort, and I get into the details of all of that in that previous episode, just the weird story of how this album came to be. It was not really a standard sort of approach that they took on this record. And Sasha wasn't a guitarist, so maybe he wasn't in the best position to produce a very guitar-oriented masterwork at this time. He did have his bandmates N. Esch and Gunter Schultz around, both of whom were excellent guitarists, but by all accounts, he wasn't really speaking much to NS at the time. And who knows, maybe his head wasn't really tuned toward the guitar so much, or even the random tastes of the music industry at the time. But for sure, by the time 1993 rolled around, the enrockification of KMFDM 
was at hand. The next album would feature guitars, at least on most of the tracks. So Sasha reconvened with Nesh in Chicago. He invested their recording budget into a completely new digital studio. So now they could at least compose basic tracks on their own, only go into a professional studio for the final mixing and mastering. And 10 years later, of course, this technology would be available to the masses via inexpensive DAWs like Ableton Live and Cakewalk and Fruity Loops and many others. And every ding-dong with a computer would now be in a band, including yours truly. But in the early 90s, you still had to pretty much be a pro musician to put together a functional home studio. Computer processing power and memory were still pretty limited compared to today. Uh, So you still needed some specialized hardware, sound modules, sequencers, and so on. And synchronizing all of that equipment was still an issue. And I remember Sasha used to talk about the hassles of syncing with SMTPE on the old KMFDM website in the 90s. So you really had to know what you were doing. But his investment in all that digital technology would also result in a glut of these crazy KMFDM remixes and singles which we'll talk about in a bit. But yeah, in the spirit of enrockification, they weren't satisfied with just two capable guitarists, so they brought in a third, Mark Durante, who was a roadie-turned-guitarist for Ministry on the Mind Tour. So the album that emerged from all of that was this, Angst, and it came out in late 1993, and it is a pretty guitar-heavy album. However, It must be said that the guitars are not on every track. Uh, You know, KMFDM gets a lot of flack that they tend to have a very general sound. And I mentioned this a couple episodes ago when I talked about the Jesus and Mary chain. They're also a band with a very recognizable sound. And they don't stray from it very much. And you could say the same for a lot of other long-lived bands from ACDC to ZZ Top. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. In some ways... Having a unique sound is a sign of success. You've carved out your own thing. But Angst, for sure, as we'll see, is not a one-trick pony. Uh, There are a lot of sounds on here, plenty of variety, and as such, it's a really good example of where KMFDM were going throughout the rest of the 90s, before their big dramatic change around the millennium. So let me talk about first hearing this record. Uh, In 1993... I was pretty much a Usenet veteran. I can't even really say the interwebs here because the web wasn't widely popular at the time. It was still mostly a gleam in Tim Berners-Lee's eye. But I remember messing with my first web browser in one of the computer labs at school around that time because I, I didn't own a computer despite being in a STEM program. In fact, I wouldn't own my own computer for many years. They were really expensive. But We had really decent computer labs, or clusters, as we used to call them. And the one in my dorm had some X-Window stations. And most of the kids never touched these because they were weird. They were for the super nerds, and most kids were more familiar with the PCs. You know, writing your term papers using WordPerfect. Some of you may remember those days. Um, But the PCs at the time still primarily used DOS displays. They weren't even WYSIWYG yet. And that seems pretty ridiculous, like that could never have been. But I know it was true. Uh, WordPerfect back in that time had a text display, and it was sort of showing you markup, not really showing you what the final document would look like. But I was drawn to the X-Window stations for a couple reasons. For one thing, they ran Unix, which any cool computer nerd preferred. 
And second reason was that they had true graphical displays. And at the time, they did run NCSA Mosaic, which was one of the first web browsers. And I remember looking at some of the early web pages on those machines. And they also had optical mice, which was something PCs just wouldn't have for another 10 years or so. So it was sort of like a weird peek into the future. And it's still kind of sad to me that more people don't run Linux over Windows and Mac OS. But anyway, I was on Usenet all the time, which, if you don't know, was and is an internet bulletin board service. And I spent an awful lot of time on rec music industrial. So my ear was to the ground on new releases and such, and I knew that KMFDM were cooking up some new material. Uh, Shortly after the Money album and the singles, they put out a single called Sucks, which I actually don't own, but I remember it generated a lot of buzz because of how self-referential and self-deprecating it was. And it might have been the start of KMFDM's long tradition of writing lyrics that referred either to themselves or to earlier releases or lyrics. It's kind of a constant recycling of all of their material. Now, I think I pointed out before that Sasha is a big Frank Zappa fan. He's gone on record in interviews saying that if he could work with any other artist, past or present, he'd work with Zappa. And sure enough, some songs on Don't Blow Your Top and UAIOE even lift Zappa lyrics wholesale. So for instance, the lyrics to the song Esh are from Zappa's I'm the Slime. And I kind of have to wonder if Frank ever heard <laughs> those songs. He was still around at the time anyway, and I know he was pretty sensitive about such things. Uh, check out what happened when John Lennon and Yoko Ono took credit for some of his songs. But anyway, Zappa was a brilliant guy, obviously, and he developed the idea of what he called conceptual continuity. That is, having recurring motifs or themes in your work to tie it into a unified whole. And he likened it to how classical artists like da Vinci would add a bit of brown to every color in their palette to unify the color scheme, sort of like a manual color correction. Well, KMFDM actively pursued conceptual continuity in their own music, Uh, For instance, one song called Power on the Extort album would even go so far as to mention conceptual continuity by name. But later albums would almost always have a song that promoted or talked about KMFDM itself, usually in very hyperbolic terms. This is a band with a sense of humor. But the first of these was Sucks, the idea of which was in a very tongue-in-cheek way to just enumerate all the various ways that KMFDM sucks. (laughs) This would be Something of a thing at live shows then, the crowd just chanting, KMFDM sucks, is a fun but not-so-inside joke. Uh, but sucks would end up becoming the lead-off single for Angst, though we didn't really know that at the time. Maybe Sasha just threw sucks on the album as an afterthought, I don't know. Uh, I'm not even sure that I heard sucks at the time, because I obviously didn't buy the single and they never made a video for it. However, there was a second lead-off single that did have a video, And what a video it was. Uh, This was A Drug Against War, which came out in late 93. I didn't buy this single until years later, but I, like everyone else, caught the video on MTV's Beavis and Butthead. So let's talk about the song briefly. Um, What can I say? Uh, If you like guitars, this is your song. It's pretty much a speed metal song. And that kind of bummed me out a bit because... I love KMFDM mostly for its groove and funk factor, not so much for the metal factor, but man, everyone seemed to love this song, including Beavis and Butthead. 
It's just this super fast song with lots of metal riffing. And that would turn out to be another recurring thing with most of the following albums having at least one speed metal song on each. And I'm thinking here of songs like Search and Destroy, Son of a Gun, Stray Bullet, and that sort of thing. None of which are really my favorites, but that's really a matter of taste. But the video, let's talk about the video. So you have to understand that one person designed nearly every KMFDM album album cover, and that person is Aidan Hughes, who's also known as Brute. And his work tends to be this sort of style that looks like a woodcut print. It's very distinctive. Uh, gives the entire KMFDM catalog a very unified appearance, again with the conceptual continuity. So for the Drug Against War video, Brute moved to Chicago and worked with the guys in the H-Gun Labs who had done a lot of videos for Ministry and the other Wax Tracks bands. And he started creating animations of all the previous KMFDM covers, and that became the video. So it was kind of an animated retrospective of all their previous work, all these iconic covers. And I remember it created a real stir. Again, being on Beavis and Butthead in 93 was like getting another 10 million eyeballs on your work. It was kind of like going viral. So suddenly people knew who KMFDM were. Uh, They were now on the radar. They were about ready to drop this album that would be their take on industrial guitar rock right in the middle of the grunge movement. So... Drug Against War was just the opening salvo, and people really dug it. So by late 93, the album finally dropped. I remember I didn't get it right away. At the time, I just didn't have the funds to go buy new albums right when they came out, at least not every new album. I would have been broke in no time. Instead, I was like all over the secondary market, as I talked about before, just spending hours and hours hunting through used music stores. But one night I went out with some friends, we went to a club, and I remember that they had dollar drafts that night, and that's always a dangerous situation. Nowadays, they'd probably be $3 drafts. But of course, it wasn't long before we were, we were feeling pretty loose, as they say, and the DJ was playing all this alternative dance music, which was just my thing. That's what I was there for. And suddenly, this tune started up. It was just this synth sequence, and somehow, someway, I knew that it was the new KMFDM song. Something about it just let me recognize them in the first few bars. And it gives me chills now just thinking about it because I was exactly right. This song unfolded. It added a bass line and drums. And finally, this just freaking amazing guitar riff. And I knew it could only be KMFDM. And altogether, this tune sounded a little similar to our favorite KMFDM song, which was and will forever be Godlike which of course sampled a riff from Angel of Death by Slayer, credit where it's due. And this tune was similar, but it wasn't identical. And sure enough, I heard Sasha start singing, and that just sealed it for me. I staggered over to the DJ booth, and I asked him what the hell that was, and he held up the sleeve. And it was KMFDM's Light, the new single. And specifically, I later found out that the version that I had heard was the so-called aerobic dub by Sasha himself, and it was 100% killer. I ran out to the store and immediately bought Angst and Light the next day. I mean, there was just no other option. So Light made a big impression on me at the time and got me more heavily into this album. So let's talk about the album in more detail. It has some classic brute artwork. Uh, When you lay it out next to the singles for A Drug Against War, 
and light and even money as well. If you kind of look at all these together, it almost tells a little story like this lady and this guy and the lady is somewhat unhappy. As you can see, she's not real pleased and she, you know, takes it out on this guy <laughs> and steals this girl, I guess, his girlfriend. And, you know, <clears throat> that's a recurring theme in Brute's art, female empowerment, and I'm all for it. But yeah, that's the story here. I thought that was kind of clever if you kind of put them all together. There's a little more going on. Um, but artwork-wise, as far as the actual insert, that's all there is. There's nothing here. This is a single tiny piece of paper, and that's all you get with just a little bit of uh, information about the album, no booklet or anything. Now, they would re-release this in later years with booklets that had complete photos and lyrics and everything, uh, and that would become standard practice on the following albums. The next album, Nihil, would have a complete booklet as well, but the original version of Angst, not so much. Um, yeah, that's it. So the back cover has the track list. Let's take a look here. Uh, has 10 tracks. The total running time is just 48 minutes, 42 seconds. So again, still really short. Uh, they were still gearing album lengths to accommodate vinyl at this time. But Sasha more than made up for that by having not one or two or three, but four singles from this album, all of which were packed with remixes. So they had a ton of material that they produced in 93 and 94. And, you know, amazingly, they'd release another album every year for the next few years. So to say that they were prolific in the 90s would be an understatement. Uh, maybe it says something about how KMFDM's star was on the rise because TVT boosted their recording budget and just had no problem releasing all of these singles. So let's dig into Angst track by track. The album starts with Light, but it wasn't the version I heard in the club. This is the album version, which is a bit more rocky, but still awesome. The riff is front and center. Uh, this is one of those self-referential songs, except unlike Sucks, this is about how great KMFDM is. But really, Sasha could be singing any lyrics. The song is about the riff, really, over that beat. The rest of it is just gravy. Obviously, this became one of KMFDM's signature tunes over the years. Uh, they would play it as an encore many times. Uh, though looking at Setlist FM now, I see they moved it to much earlier in the set. Of course, they have about 100 more songs these days than they used to. Anyway, I love this song. Uh, it's as good an introduction as any for people who are wondering what this band sounds like. And that goes into A Drug Against War. We already talked about that one. Pretty much a speed metal tune. You like guitars, grunge kids? Well, here's the guitars. And I just want to point out that after Godlike, this is the song they played live most of the time, closely followed by Light. That's one, two, and three, according to Setlist FM. So what a way to lead off this album. It's just a great one-two punch of Light, followed by A Drug Against War. And if that weren't enough guitar, the third track is Blood. Now, this track had been around for a while. It was one of the first written after Money. And the version on the album is not the original version. The original is on the A Drug Against War single. And this on the album is the Evil Mix. And it's far superior, in my opinion. The original sounds much more like a demo. This is like a uh, groovy, down-tempo song that features slower guitar riffing. Um, I seem to remember that most of the lyrics here came from the I Ching 
I happened to be reading my copy one night and I noticed, huh, this sounds really familiar. <laughs> oh, wait, they're the lyrics to Blood. But I don't recall that for sure. Um, but yeah, I do like this track a lot. The beat and the guitar are really aggressive. It's got a very industrial feel. It has plenty of metal clanging percussion and that kind of thing. And the guitar isn't just chugging. There's just a lot of cool hooks. So this is really a great tune. And that also goes into another one of my favorites, which is Lust. And this song has very little, if any, guitar. It's a fast-paced electronic dance song with these really complex synth patterns. And most of the early KMFDM albums would have at least one tune that Enesh sang in German. And this is that tune on this album. And I have no idea what he's singing about, but the song is catchy as hell. And you'll find that you can even sing along after a few listens. It's just got great samples and instrumentation, some really classic KMFDM synth sounds. This is why I bought their records reliably throughout the 90s. I knew that uh, whatever else I'd find on there, there would at least be some of these groovy gems like Lust. Even the singles would be guaranteed to have these like surprising, amazing, and creative beats on them. Sasha was just endlessly inventive around this time with the remixes. He was able to put all sorts of spins on them, completely reinventing the songs, and his production values were immaculate, it has to be said. I mean, he didn't have Alan Mulder or Flood, but he did have Chris Shepard, who was no slouch, and Chris gave all of Sasha's ideas this like clean, punchy sound that was just over and above the other acts of the day. So yeah, check out Lust. It's really exemplary. It's a great tune. Then we have Glory. This song just mostly follows the quintessential KMFDM template. It has a big beat, guitar riffing, vocals calling out those in power. In this case, it's more or less the 1%. So yeah, a decent track. Not a lot to distinguish it, in my opinion. It doesn't really vary very much from their basic heavy sound. This is like meat and potatoes for them. And it would be the fourth single, but we'll discuss that later. It's also notable that the refrain reuses lyrics from their earlier track more and faster, again, with just that constant recycling. And that goes into Move On. This is uh, more of a heavy ballad with plenty of sludgy riffing and an absolutely huge beat, the ultra-heavy beat indeed. Uh, this tune has Enesh and Sasha trading off the vocals. They reuse some of the lyrics from Die Now, Live Later, from Naive. And I should say uh, that Dorona Alberti does the background vocals in this song and on many of the other tracks in this album. Dorona is a Dutch singer who worked with them throughout the 90s. And trivia, she did the mysterious vocal samples that you hear in Godlike. And apparently it's from a recording of her as a small child trying to sound like an American. She's not really saying anything. She's just trying to mimic English. And that... That insight came from Sasha, who used to run a Q&A page in the late 90s on the website, and he cleared up many mysteries there for us fans. But anyway, Dorona's great. Her vocals are really powerful. She's just an excellent counterpoint to the male vocals, and she actually takes the lead vocal on a later song, which we'll get to. But by this point, female vocals were something of a KMFDM staple. The next tune is No Peace, one of my favorites. These are like all my favorites. I guess they all are. But again, the guitars here aren't overwhelming. This is kind of a jaunty, upbeat tune featuring a Hammond B3 of all things. <laughs> and it really showcases how great Sasha was as an arranger, incorporating all these varied sounds. The Hammond sounds great. Uh, lyrically, this tune really 
anticipates the kind of political atmosphere we've seen even recently here in the U.S. So Black Lives Matter, for instance. Uh, It's KMFDM as ever standing up for the people against stupidity and willful ignorance of those in power. And this song could have been written yesterday because it's so thematically on point. But musically, it's kind of a chaser between two very heavy songs, Move On, and the next one, which is A Hole in the Wall, which stylistically is very similar to Move On. It's another slow metal banger. Uh, The lyrics to this one are actually the lyrics to Libeslide from Naive, except they're in English, and Libeslides obviously are in German. So again, that conceptual continuity and recycling. And again, Enesh and Sasha share vocals on this tune. So that goes into Sucks, which we already discussed. Um, This is maybe a bit of a more lighthearted offering in the context of this album. The lyrics are pretty silly. Like, for instance, our music is sampled, it's totally fake, it's done by machines because they don't make mistakes. Or, KMFDM forward the ultimate sound, and a message from Satan if you turn it around, followed by a clip of Nesh speaking backward, and so on. And they would even mulch these lyrics later on uh, the track Beast on Nihil, which references some of these lyrics. So, once again, recycling. Finally, we round it out with The Problem. And this is a pretty unusual track. It's kind of a slow synth jam accompanied with guitar samples and some tasteful piano. And it's mostly Dorona Alberti telling a little story. She's like trying to put her finger on the real problem in our society. And the lyrics reinforce KMFDM's central message, which is and always was to rip the system, to recognize the inherent injustices, injustices and seek to correct them. But musically, this is practically a jazz tune and like no peace and lust it really stretches the the whole sonic palette of the album so you can't say that angst is their metal album and just leave it at that there's actually a lot of sophisticated things going on here there's some depth to it and i don't think kmfdm has historically gotten credit for that they're often labeled as an industrial one-trick pony but this track shows that they could mix it up So yeah, that's the album, 10 songs in just under 50 minutes, you do the math. But as I said, it's really just the starting point because they did release four singles. So I mentioned Sucks, which I don't have, and then these three, A Drug Against War. Ah, here it is. Yes, I was confused for a moment. A Drug Against War, Light and Glory. So let's take a look at these real quick. Sucks has four remixes of that track and a version of More and Faster. A Drug Against War has four tracks, three versions of that song, plus the original version of Blood. And I got to confess, I don't listen to this one much. And I picked it up mostly because I'm just a terrible completist, although I still don't own Sucks. Light is really amazing. Uh, It has nine mixes from various artists, including all of those listed here. Uh, Nine Inch Nails, Dee Warzal, Crunchomatic, Vince Lawrence, and then a bunch by Sasha under a bunch of different names like Excessive Force and Son of a Gun and just KMFDM. Uh, And notably, the Nine Inch Nails version is pretty noisy and cool, worth checking out. So yeah, a lot of crazy takes on light here and a lot of money for your dollar back in the day. And Glory is unusual. Um, I seem to recall that this single was once a limited edition thing that was only available to folks on the fan club, but then Sasha relented and gave it 
a general release. Maybe I'm making that up because I can't find any evidence that that actually happened online. But wow, it's a really cool single. It's got these uh, bunch of mixes of glory, four different mixes of glory, plus these other B-sides. Um, has a great remix of Lust by Chemlab. Uh, it has this really uh, wild mix of glory by N. Esh called the Cajun dub that's pretty nuts. And then it even has a taste of the next album, Nihil, with an early version of Trust. So yeah, it's a pretty varied listen. And back in the day, it was well worth the seven bucks or whatever it was. So altogether, that's 25 more tracks to explore beyond the 10 that you had on Angst. Uh, so yeah, it's a ton of music for a year's work. It's practically a damn box set when you think about it. Four discs worth of music. And keep in mind that Sasha did most of this himself just because he was enthusiastic to use a digital audio workstation for the first time. You know, he was no longer tethered to a professional studio and magnetic tape, at least for composition and remixing. And it really freed him to go nuts, which he did. So in addition to pumping out a classic album every year, they also found time to go on tour. Uh, the Angstfest tour had 28 dates in April and May of 94. The band released video of some of these performances on their Beat by Beat by Beat DVD. Of course, much of this is now on YouTube. Um, it's fun to look back on this period of the band when Enesh and Gunther Schultz were still around. Enesh is just such a unique guy, and he lent an undeniable weirdness to the band. This tall, bald dude in a dress lurching around and barking in German. Nothing that they did in later years really ever filled the gap he left, in my opinion. Uh, and Gunther was a total guitar god, probably one of the most technically for proficient guitarists in all the bands I've discussed so far, except for Alex Lifeson of Rush, of course. However, when you think about it, they're both Canadian, so maybe they know each other, or maybe they are actually next-door neighbors. Wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't you watch that reality show, Gunther and Lurkst, coming to Netflix in, De in December? Yeah, right? <laughs> Let's think about that. But no, seriously, looking back at the bands I've talked about, there's really no one other than Rush who surpasses Gunter's skill level. Um, he is really, really accomplished. And uh, he used to run a guitar talk column on KMFDM's website in the late 90s. And he would talk about various things. But I remember him encouraging folks to learn actual musical notation. And he wasn't a fan of tablature. But of course, this guy is literally a guitar teacher. That's something that he did on the side after being in the band. And uh, of course, he's going to tell people to learn guitar the right way. I mean, I can't read music worth a damn. For me, it's tablature all the way. Maybe if uh, he and I live closer, I would hire him to straighten me out. But yeah, if you watch some of those old concert videos, you can see Gunter just blaze off these ridiculous solos without even breaking a sweat. He's just sort of staring into the crowd or whatever, probably wondering where to get a good sandwich after the show. Uh, but that leads to the question of what I love about this album. I do love the weirdness that Enesh brought. I love Gunter's guitar heroics. I love Sasha's raw creativity and the sheer amount of ideas that he had, all the catchy hooks and the kick-ass grooves. And they did end up nodding to grunge a bit here. Uh, they were successfully enrockified, but they didn't bow to it utterly, and they maintained their own sound and identity throughout it all. And to me, this album is prime KMFDM, and it was a harbinger of the great material that they would soon produce. 
in the next few albums, like Nihil, Extort, Symbols, and Adios. They would all be magical in their own ways. Nihil would even flirt with mainframe crossover success to the point where Sasha would get uncomfortable and steer Extort in a completely different direction. And that's a bold decision to not just cash out, but then we all know that they wouldn't sell to a major for a couple of bucks, right? And they never really did. They rode wax tracks until it crash landed. Then they rode TVT for many more years before disbanding in 99 and then later regrouping. But to me, KMFDM would never really be the same. They would never again reach the heights of those great albums from the 90s. They'd turn into more of a traditional rock band in the 2000s. <coughs> Pardon me. And I, I just lost interest. Uh, I did pick up their comeback album, Attack, but it didn't really speak to me. Um, but yeah, I find myself playing back angst and the other albums of the 90s a lot and just marveling at how fresh they sound, how many musical ideas were there, how unlike anything else they were at the time. And I know later bands like White Zombie and Marilyn Manson and even Ramstein arguably would just rip off this sort of sound that you find on this album. Uh, just like Rob Zombie ripped off Al Jorgensen's look and Manson ripped off Ogre's look. Um, this would just become another industrial subgenre, industrial metal. And, you know, how cool was it that KMFDM brought in so many musical guests over the years? They explored so many different styles, and they still managed to always sound like themselves. And even how Sasha has embraced different cultures over the years, he's made attempts to record lyrics in as many languages as possible. This is a band who's always spoken out for the little guy, the guy with no voice. This is a band that's consistently punched up, and these days, I think that's a clear indicator of whether you're on the correct side or not. Are you punching up or down? You know, it's pretty easy to tell folks. I'm not a fan of punching down myself, no sir. And it's pretty clear in my book who's up and who's down and who's held the reins of power over the years and is doing whatever they can to cling to it now that things might be changing. And I think that time will prove that KMFDM has always been on the correct side of history. You know, idiots have tried to pin them as fascists just because Sasha and Enesh are German, and other idiots have tried to pin mass shootings on them because some of the shooters like KMFDM. But, you know, a lot of people like KMFDM. And if you have half a brain and you listen to their music, it's pretty clear that they're anti-fascist and anti-violence. You know, and... and their slogan is black man, white man, yellow man, rip the system, which is not exactly racist, right? And if you just listen to Glory, like I said, try to tell me that it's anything but a rant against the 1%. I mean, it could have been written today for how on point it is. So, you know, listen to that song and think about all the asshole billionaire CEOs in the news. Of course, that song is still relevant today. So, to me, I love KMFDM for their music because it was so innovative and so well-produced and so amazingly funky and groovy and for how it rocked, for how it wasn't rockified. But I also love their message, social equity, fighting against greed and selfishness, justice and equal treatment for everyone, and to hold those in power to account. You know, those were important messages to uphold in 93, and they're just as relevant now, 30 years later. And goddamn, I can't believe it's been 30 years. <laughs> so there you have it, kids. One of my favorite albums, Angst by the mighty KMFDM. Who in the 1990s, in my mind, could do no wrong? This has been Stronger Than Reason, episode 30. As ever, I thank you for listening. 
subscribe to hear me go on and on about the great music of our misspent youths. This show is on YouTube and also on Apple and Spotify podcasts, so you have no reason to ever miss an episode. Stay safe, stay sane, and until next time, stay strong.